Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Talking Techniques podcast. I'm your host, Biotechniques Digital Editor Tristan Free, and in this special episode of Talking Techniques, we'll be exploring the challenges and misconceptions faced by researchers in Africa while looking into the existing efforts to combat these challenges and meeting some of the organisations that are thriving on the continent. My first guest is the computational biologist Laura Boykin. Laura works in a team of researchers in East Africa, including Dr Joseph Nguru, head of the Selian Agricultural Institute in Tanzania. Her team is primarily focused on the use and delivery of portable DNA sequencing and analysis to farmers in the region. With this team, she has founded the Cassava Virus Action Project, dedicated to the protection of cassava crops from viruses and whiteflies by reducing the time taken to sequence and analyse genetic data from potentially infected crops, allowing effective decisions and courses of action to be taken quickly. She has also been outspoken online about the problematic behaviour of research tourism, or helicopter research, calling out the practice in papers published in well-established journals, something that we are going to discuss today. So, Laura, please can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your work? My name is Laura Boykin, and I am a computational biologist. I am a recovering academic and social entrepreneur and co-founder of the Cassava Virus Action Project, which is a group of researchers and scientists and industry people all trying to do portable DNA sequencing on the farm to diagnose sick plants in East Africa. Fantastic. And I've seen that you've been very outspoken on Twitter and in the past about um, concepts of helicopter research or research tourism. Can, can you explain those concepts to me? So helicopter research or research tourism is this unethical practice of people flying into a region, typically a lower resourced region, collecting samples utilizing many scientists and many local infrastructures, flying out, publishing papers, getting grants, getting money, all while giving no credit to the scientists on the ground who actually made the work happen. And I think, if I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not the scholar on this, but I think the term comes from mainly um, medical research, like human genomics, people going in and getting samples to do things um, unethically in that respect. But I also think that it's stifling scientific progress across the board. I mean, people are going in there collecting plants, fish, um, soil samples, and just, it's just a complete abuse of power is what it is. And and do you think this is a, a lack of thought on the part of the researchers that are doing this? Or do you think this is an opportunistic um, behavior? I think that it's an opportunistic behavior, 100%. I mean, it's just the most unethical practice I've ever seen, and it's rewarded. It's rewarded by scientific societies that continue to put these helicopter researchers on the plenary stage. It's rewarded in the journals where the editors have no policies to actually stop it from happening. I mean, when you benefit from something, you're doing it consciously. I mean, you know for a fact, did I go out there and get all of that information myself or not. And and it's it's just it's the whole systemic racism, the whole system was built to be opportunistic and people have figured out that that's a way they can do it and most people don't call them out and it's disgusting. Do you have any specific examples of this kind of research happening? 
So last year I went to the Wired 25 conference and I think the week before, and I went, I went on this panel um, and we talked about, you know, sort of data and how data is being misused and, um, you know, my, my panelist, my co-panelist there was talking about the misuse of data for um, black Americans and AI, you know, recognition and all of that sort of stuff. And, and that was really enlightening to be on the panel. Um, but for me at that moment when I was there, people had just published a paper on like sort of like the origin of humans. And, you know, I think it was Botswana or something where they had gotten some genetic material. And there was not a single author from Botswana on this nature paper. And it's, and it just, it shocked me. And fast forward to COVID, I mean, I think it was last week. I don't know. We can look it up. I think Nature or Science published a paper on, you know, sort of building infrastructure for COVID in low-resource countries. And there is not a single author from any of those countries on the paper. And it's, you know what? Journals have a responsibility to put a policy in place to stop this quite shocking to hear that you could try to coordinate a response to something globally and not have a representative sample of people trying to come up with that solution so you you mentioned there for that journals need to put something in place to um to try and stop this how how would you what would you like to see journals implement to try and prevent this kind of thing happening great so first of all and i've spent a lot of time trying to really think about how do you stop this right and the majority of these journals are held or supported by societies, right? Scientific societies have typically been built around journals. And these societies are just horrific when it comes to global inclusion, right? And they don't have policies for themselves. So how would their journals actually have policies? So it, it's not, this is not a hard thing to fix. It's a hard reject if there is a paper coming from a country where the data has been collected and there is not a single scientist or anybody on, and on the author list, hard reject. And it goes beyond just the journals. I mean, that doesn't, that's not hard to do, right? I look at this paper. There have been fish collected from a lake on the African continent, and there's not a single author from there. You're telling me these white people landed, went out there, collected the fish, and came back? I don't believe it. I don't believe any of it. So I think that journals and societies have a responsibility to clean up their act and they know who they are. And more importantly, who funds this work? Who funds it? These big, huge philanthropic places are propping up helicopter research. And I guarantee you, they don't have policies to stop it. So it's, it's a multi-layered thing. But really, for me, if funders stop giving money for helicopter research and journals stop publishing it, and societies clean up their thing we're good to go as as someone who um conducts a lot of research in in africa yourself um but you work with uh actively work with african scientists you credit them on your papers um and you're very much more involved in the development of science in africa as opposed to going in and sort of extracting data and then coming back to to the us um what advice would you give to people who are conducting research in an area that means that they need to go across to Africa to conduct some research, how would you advise them to do that properly, ethically, um, and responsibly? Yeah, so I think, you know, it was never, it was never in my crystal ball that I was going to be doing work 
you know, on the African continent. It was, honestly, I was at a conference and I was presenting some work on supercomputing and phylogenetic trees, as you do. And um, some, a, a really amazing scientist named Dr. Joseph Nunguru approached me. He's from Tanzania and he approached me, you know, at the coffee break and just said, hey, you know, we've got all this really um, fascinating uh, viral data for one of these RNA viruses you know, would you mind um, partnering up with us and maybe coming to Tanzania to work with us on um, these cassava viruses, you know? And I think for me, I was invited there. I was invited in and I've never, and, and I, and I quickly decided that I was a student of, of everything around me when I was there. I didn't, I came in very humbly to learn. And look, I know my part of the team, I do computational stuff, but I'm not a cassava expert. I'm not an expert on Africa. I'm not an expert on East Africa. I'm just somebody who is invited in, who really is happy to be there. And when I'm asked to leave by my collaborators, I will leave, right? So, and also you have to have a really strict um, policy for yourself as the person from outside on what you will accept to do and what you won't. And so, for example, one thing that is really important is, you know, when we did our first round of sequencing in the field, we had um, a camera person with us. And every single part of our research is curated for, for good. I mean, we're not going to have the imagery that you see is not by chance. We spend a lot of time making sure our pictures are representative and they're powerful. And if I'm invited to go on the BBC, I'm not going on the BBC without my colleagues, right? I have to be willing to say no to a really important opportunity, including this podcast, right? I, you, you wrote to me and said, will you be on the podcast? And before I said yes to you, I looked to see who else was going to be on the podcast with me. And the fact that you have, you know, two amazing African-led organizations, you know, with the visibility in STEM and 54 Gene in Nigeria, I said yes, because this podcast that you're going to do is going to be not just a bunch of white people talking, but really an inclusive group of people working for the good. So my advice is really to be very vigilant about what you say yes to and how you represent and also step down, right? Step down. I, I'm happy to not always do the podcast or do the talk or whatever. I mean, there's so much joy in seeing other people fly and you just have to create space for everyone to share the success of, of what the team has done. I think we're really successful at what we do because we are a really inclusive bunch of people. Like we don't just do science. We love music. We like to go to art. We go to concerts. We ask about each other's families. Like we are more than just scientists. We're, a, we're friends and we care about each other. And you have to just humble yourself and not judge when you're doing stuff. And then amazing science happens when everybody can be themselves. Okay, so it's it's almost a um, a perspective change that needs to happen um, globally. That you know, as as coming from a um, North American or European institution, um, and I'm sure this happens as well from um, East Asia, but that you going to Africa, you're the you know you're going to be the expert there. That's going to be doing everyone else a load of help. Um, is it kind of changing that perspective to actually know these are you're going to assist um, your fellow fellow researchers? which I think is, is probably something that, that is a, 
fundamental perspective change in a lot of people who currently work in in North America and in Europe in science. Oh, completely. And it's not it's not just like it's a complete let's smash that whole idea that you're going there to help. You know, this is the thing. Scientists and diversity and inclusion and all of these missions that people want to put on paper, that shouldn't be the sideshow. Diversity and inclusion and equity is not the sideshow. It has to be woven into the fabric of what you're doing, right? We're scientists. We do science together. We, that's all we focus on. We focus on science, and that means that you know, as if I were to go anywhere else, I go in there humbly with my skills, I put them on the table and all the other scientists come in there and we learn from each other. Like, it's not, I've never thought I was going there to help. I thought I was going there to learn about an amazing group of scientists working. And you know what, the most important thing to do is to science together. Do you know what I mean? Like really science, be respectful, let everybody have their space to write the papers, let everybody, and be really mindful of the fact that data isn't everywhere, right? Like internet is not everywhere, it's expensive. Write that stuff into the grants. And, you know, Google Docs are great for people that have constant internet, but for our group, it doesn't really work. So we we tend to do other things like, you know, we circulate our, you know, old school way with Word, but it works for us. And, you know, finding out how your collaborators want to communicate a lot don't want email, let's do WhatsApp. Some want signal, some want, you know, it's like some want phone, some want videos. You know, I, I just feel like it's just really about building a team. Like the problem is so important that the teamwork has to be precise. And so we don't have time for anybody to come in with an ego. You know what I mean? That, oh, that whole ego thing that I know everything or you know everything, mm-mm. everybody has their their space on the team. And I feel like... If more people would go and do science like that globally, we would just be better off, really. So you've spoken before about um, the colonization of science, which is what you've largely touched on there. Um, And so do you believe that there's a role that technological advancements can play in the decolonization of of science, Um, obviously alongside those big change in attitude? Yeah, I think that... that, um, the, the technology is really doing a great job of, of decolonizing a lot of science. I mean, all of the portable thing, all the portable technologies, like, you know, the sequencing things that we've done, and also drones and, and um, you know, f- faster compute nodes and, and all of that. I really feel like that is doing, that is leapfrogging a lot of the reliance on, um, on, you know, more resourced places to actually innovate for impact. And so I feel like it's also when I, I mean, I know that what we do is this amazing story of technology for good, right? I know that that's what sets what we're doing apart. But I'm also very, very mindful of the unintended consequences of technology as well. And that's why I push so hard that, yes, we have opened up this amazing way to collect data within three hours on a farm for farmers down from six months. We've done that. But with that, it can be misused as well, right? We've just made it really easy for helicopter science in a way, haven't we? So I feel like you have to walk the line of technology can really decolonize things, but also be mindful and have those things that we talked about earlier about journals rejecting somebody doing that, funders not rewarding that 
unethical use of the technology, right? I feel like you have to simultaneously build the technology to decolonize STEM right alongside the social justice act aspect of it by putting policies in place in these massive rewarding in, um, entities like journals and grants. So that, those are my thoughts about um, technology. I think it's amazing. I love, love, love people in really remote places being able to generate their own genomic data for their people and it's hosted locally. I mean, that's, that's a really transformational shift to shift the power of, of how science is going to go into the future. So, if advances in sequencing technology can begin to address challenges to research in East Africa by decolonizing the science and providing more countries and people with access to useful tools, what can the digital revolution that defines our age offer? My next guest is using the internet to amplify the voices of African researchers, highlighting the talent and scientific excellence from the continent, and countering the perceptions and harmful narratives outlined by Laura that exist in aspects of the scientific community. The site Visibility STEM Africa has so far hosted the profiles and stories of over 30 African researchers from South Africa to Egypt, Tanzania to Sierra Leone. It also provides access to opportunities for Africans in STEM and features a blog from regular correspondents. Today, I'll be speaking to its co-founder, Natasha Muanigwa. So, please can you tell us a bit about yourself um, and introduce us to Visibility STEM Africa? Sure. Um, so, my name is Natasha Muanigwa and I come from Zimbabwe. And currently, I'm a second-year PhD student at the University of Luxembourg, where I study Parkinson's disease specifically um, using midbrain organoids. Um, but then on the side of that, I'm also the co-founder of Visibility STEM Africa, which is an initiative that I uh, co-founded with a friend of mine whose name is also Natasha, interestingly. Um, and it's a platform that aims to empower um, Africans to but also flourish in STEM fields. So we really want to promote that Africans can pursue um, different careers within within STEM, so whether that's the sciences, tech, engineering, mathematics, but also to help them actually stay if they choose to take these careers. Okay, and, and what was it that prompted you to set up Visibility STEM? Was it um, sort of, was there one individual moment that sort of sparked it for you? Or was it a culmination of different things that um, made you think that you needed to set up this site? Yeah, so it was definitely a culmination of different things. So um, as I mentioned, I'm from Zimbabwe, but I've been in Europe uh, now for eight years, going on nine. Um, and I've been in the sciences ever since I did my bachelor. And um, it was quite a an isolating journey, uh, being one of the few Africans in the spaces that I was in, um, one, sometimes the only black person in the room, a lot of the times the only African. And um, I started um, thinking about, you know, how how much more um, confident I would have felt in my journey had I had a community of people uh, with similar backgrounds as, as I did. So it was kind of an idea floating around in my mind last year that, you know, it would be great to have kind of a community of Africans who are within the sciences who can, you know, um, mentor each other, communicate about, you know, their struggles, their successes. So that was kind of the inspiration. But also Twitter was a big motivation. I got very active on academic Twitter last year, um, and it, it was really great. I really enjoyed um, interacting with scientists all over the world. But I also still couldn't quite find a community of Africans who kind of had my background so it kind of got me thinking, what if I tried to create something like that? 
and then my co-founder kind of stepped in. Um, interesting, we have we have not met in person. She's based in in Sydney, Australia, and um, she grew up in Botswana actually, where I also spent my childhood. Started on Twitter. I told her about this idea in my head that I want to create this platform, you know, to first of all to promote the visibility of Africans in STEM fields because I think a lot of people don't know that many Africans in the sciences but to create this community and she immediately was so enthusiastic and, and um, came up with like tangible ways that she could help create this platform. So helping with the website, with um, creating a, a, a logo, the brand, that's really how it, it got birthed and, and it's quite incredible how quickly things um, escalated and, and, and became bigger than what we actually thought because uh, this was around August, September of, uh, of last year, 2019. And uh, what's the reception to the the site been like? Firstly, from from the African research community, um, but then also from the international research community. Yeah, so the reception has been pretty incredible. I think that's also what has motivated us to continue to build the platform and to grow it more than than what we had initially thought. Because um, we we launched our website in in January, and immediately we had a lot of people uh, coming on our website. Um, I was then subsequently interviewed by Forbes Science, which was amazing, and of course gave our platform even more visibility. Um, but I've also been featured in some uh, local newspapers back back in Zimbabwe, and a lot of people, um, we, we, a lot of people from the African continent have reached out to us. Uh, so from Zimbabwe, from South Africa, Nigeria, just a lot of countries saying they're so happy we're creating this platform because it's so um, empowering to see other people from their backgrounds. Um, in these spaces, but also internationally. I mean, Forbes Science is a big, you know, the big uh, platform, of course. So that was amazing, and it's it's been really encouraging. Um, even if you look at our numbers, we've reached almost two thousand followers on Twitter in just a few months, and uh, this also is, is across our, the rest of our social media, over two thousand visits on our website. So it's been pretty incredible, considering it's less than or about six months old now. It's a really fantastic growth, and I think um, obviously you highlight that that Forbes article is quite a key key sort of stimulant for for some of that growth. Just interested in your sort of personal opinion, um, which kind of mattered more for you? Did you find that the the inclusion in the local newspapers back in Zimbabwe had a bit more of an emotional feel to it, or was it the thrill of the Forbes the Forbes articles more of a more of a stimulus to keep going? Yeah, I I would say both, but in different ways because what happened is the Forbes article what um, was a catalyst for all these other articles. So I think the moment the story was in Forbes, then a lot of people back home started reaching out to me as well. Um, but I think what was really cool about um, the, the newspaper articles back home and a couple of online publications is the number of DMs I get like from others in Zimbabwe just literally just thanking me, like, thank you for just putting Zimbabwe on the map for something positive. And that for me, is, 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 I, it's an indescribable feeling for people to just take time out of their day to just message you and say thank you for what you're doing we, we see what you're doing we see what you're trying to do and and you know the full dot was amazing and I, I i can't actually believe that happened but i think just those personal you know interactions i have with people when they reach out to me i i, I am so grateful for that it's incredible fantastic well what do you think some of the um challenges have been um when you find yourself trying to promote african researchers and and their work yeah, so I have to say that um, w- one of the challenges that that we're we're facing, but I think through social media, it's 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 been it's been something we've been able 
tackle, but it's actually finding the African researchers because they are there, but they haven't really been channels and avenues through which they've been promoted. So it's been it's been quite a task for for for, for me and for for my co-founder to you know look for people from across the continent because we we specifically chose to do a pan-African thing. We didn't I didn't go visit them Zimbabwe or visit them Southern Africa. We intentionally chose to go for the continent and it's important for us that we try and spread the voices of people from all 54 countries if we can and that's really our goal so you know there's some countries where we find people really easily like you know I'm from Zimbabwe so that's always easy Nigeria South Africa but then you know there's some places that it, it, it's still really challenging to find people to share their stories and their work um, because they haven't really been platforms where they've been shown in the first place so it's really I've really been getting my networking game up on Twitter and on social media to, to, to hunt down people to profile for the website. Um, I have to say that people are, people, when they do read the profiles, they're not only Africans who are reading this, so it's also people from, uh, from outside of Africa, so the international community. And I'm happy that people are receptive to the work because I do think there are some, um, sometimes Africa is not looked at in the same light as the other continents, particularly in the scope of research and science. So it's encouraging that not only Africans are, are on our side or engaging with us, but also people from from the from the outside community because I was a bit, you know, wondering how people receive this because it's not just for Africans, it's to also change the narrative um, about Africans' contributions to science. So it's encouraging that people are, are receptive. But I was a bit uh, yeah, nervous about that, but it's been positive so far. Okay, so you you've touched on it a bit there in the um, in what you were kind of expecting. Um, wh- what kind of attitudes or perceptions do you sort of do you encounter? Maybe not in terms of the reception to um, to visibility STEM Africa, but in your day to day conversations with people about um, research from Africa, or perhaps with um, with funders or publishers and things like that. Um, what are some of the perceptions that you come across? Yeah, so I think just through my interactions with, 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 with Africans who are actually on the continent, because I, I have to admit that I, I stand from a different position as somebody who's doing research in Europe, in the European institution. Um, so it's very different to me. But through uh, some of the profiling we've done and some of the conversations I've had is that, um, you know, um, African research is not, it's not put at the same kind of standard as, as, as research that may be published in Europe or the U.S., for example, um, even if there is good, high-quality work, it might not be featured in the, you know, high-impact publications, but which, you know, uh, unfortunately, in, 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 in the world we live in right now, that still holds a lot of value, you know, if you're publishing in nature or science as opposed to other journals, it can always, like, oh, you know, uh, seen in a different light, which is problematic in a, in a sense, but, you know, that's another conversation altogether. But I think... Um, there's, I, I, I've, I've gotten the, the sense that a lot of um, African research is, uh, you know, um, published in really journals can be challenging, but also um, getting cited. So, you know, getting, getting um, African researchers' work actually cited by other scientists doesn't happen as much. I don't know if this is just a prejudice that when people see certain names, you know, in the authorship that they... I don't question the quality of the research, which again is problematic. So these are some things that have been of my attention through conversations that that we've had. Um, so yeah, so I think there's there's a lot of work for people to to start to to, 
to view African research that comes out of Africa in the same kind of light as that that comes from any other place in, in, in the world, really. Um, but that's why we, we, we try and promote this visibility that people can talk about their work and even platform where people can see, oh, wow, okay, this is what they're doing, and people can speak for themselves about what they're doing, you know. So I think um, that's, that's really important. It's um it's interesting that you mentioned the the issues with with getting African researchers cited um on papers. Um earlier in this podcast I um I spoke to Laura Boykin who works um in East Africa. Um and she was saying um we well we discussed the the issues of of helicopter research researchers yeah. coming across um to to African nations and um and you know uh, doing research working with um research scientists but then not not citing them or claiming that they haven't worked with um anyone along the way um and so uh, from your opinion do you see that as as those researchers trying to um give themselves the best chance of getting published or do you think because they think that publishers will um, be prejudiced against their work if they see those names on there um, or do you think it is solely um, those researchers taking advantage, essentially, um, of the situation? Um, or I suppose probably a combination of both. Yeah, I I would probably assume that it's a combination because you know if 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 historically you don't see people or people in your environment aren't really getting cited, and the best way for you to be involved in certain work is to work with these people, these foreign you know people coming and doing the work then maybe that's it's a good chance for collaboration. And I also think that, you know, this helicopter research trend, it's very convenient for someone to just come and, you know, uh, do the work and, and, and make it seem like no one else who works on the ground actually contributed. And, and then there's no accountability and there's no repercussions for it, you know. And even if the local people, they just accept that that's how it is, it doesn't make it okay. I think sometimes it's just like, oh, that's how it is. And at least we collaborated. But the system has to change. We can't continue like that. But it's definitely a problem on the continent. I think I've seen, because um, I follow Laura on, on social media, and she, she highlights a lot of these papers where they did work in whatever country, in East Africa, West Africa, whatever, and there's not one mention of anyone on, on uh, anyone from that place who contributed. And it's like, that can't be, you know, can't make any sense. So it's definitely a problem um, that, that needs to be highlighted and spoken about candidly, I think. Um, okay, so do you think, um, and this is not to uh, shift the emphasis from the people who are um, sort of perpetuating this practice, um, but do you think that there's also a case that we need to um, maybe empower African researchers to to know um, and be able to report when these kind of things occur, when they've been worked with, but they're not cited, to put that kind of structure in yeah. place to allow them to um, to to help call it out, essentially? Because um, at the moment, I guess all there is yeah. is Twitter, um, which, whilst it's good for spreading yeah, the word, absolutely. it's not like an official, um, official way of reporting this kind of behaviour. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. I think there have there has to be some kind of system, like a structural system, where if these kinds of things happen, it's it's reported, and then there's some repercussions. Because again, if there's no consequences, yeah, we can tweet all day, but it doesn't make a difference. And as much as um, I'm sure that the local scientists would want to speak up, but then to whom and who is going to do something about it, you know? So it's, it's also, uh, I think, I, I can't really say what the solution is in this case, but I definitely think even at, at the publishing level, you know, being a little bit 
when they're evaluating papers, like, okay, this research was done in this in in, in a foreign environment in whatever Zimbabwe, for example, and which was um, they were getting samples from Zimbabwe and all this thing, and and there's no you know, there's no author from, from, not even an acknowledgement of anyone locally. That's a bit strange, you know. Um, but for sure, I, I think there has to be some kind of system put in place. But because without that, yeah, people can complain. Even if you educate the people, who, who are they going to, uh, like, who's to do something about it? You know what I mean? So it's a bit, um, it's, it's a structural kind of change that has to happen. And, and, and I think it's good that people are starting to get called out and, and we do have to empower also the the, the, the local researchers. Um, uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's it's a bit of a tricky a tricky one about how to address it, but something has to be done. Uh, I suppose we're we're almost in the stage where it's becoming a, a a bigger issue every day, and people are learning more about it. Um, and I guess it, as you say, it's just converting that into um, into an actual change that can mean that we can begin to stop it challenge researchers properly who are doing it as opposed to just having to confront them on twitter which is all we have at the moment um yeah. going back to to visibility stem um what what are some of the things that you are most proud of that you've achieved with that website yeah so i think first and foremost i think it's the community that that we're building um you know considering again it was just an, a, a, an idea floating around in my mind ago and, and and now you know my co-founder and I have managed to create like a whole community of, of, of Africans and also non-Africans who who, who see the, the the vision behind what we're trying to do um so the community that we've built it, it's been really encouraging I think we have like I said on Twitter we have almost a 2,000 people and and I think about a thousand of those are actually African because I make sure I follow every single African them that they find I, I I follow them on Twitter so I just have a, a really long list um, also really um, proud of um, all the profiling we've done. So we've profiled almost uh, 70 Africans in STEM. Um, so um, currently on our website, I think we have uh, about 30. So we release uh, profiles every three weeks, and then we promote them on our social um, channels. Um, and so when we profile people, they talk about where they're from and how being an African has been their journey in science, the challenges, but also the successes they face. And it's been, I think, really inspiring how, how many people um, have reached out and said, wow, you know, I didn't know there were so many Kenyans in this field or there's so many people in this field. So, you know, I'm just really proud of that, the community and also just how people are very receptive to, to what we're trying to do um, and in, in amplifying the voices of Africans who are, who are in, in STEM fields. Um, I would say those are like the, 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 the major things, but there's so much that we have in the works now. We're actually registering as a non-profit now, so that's really exciting. And with that, then we're, we're hoping more um, practical projects, so mentorship pro um, programs, and um, as well as doing projects on the continent with, with schools, with the youth. So I'm just really proud of how far we've come in such a short space of time. It's just, I'm actually sum that up. I think that's the... I wanted to move from the promotion and cheerleading of African scientists and research to a company that is working on the continent, leading the way in genomic research. To do this, I spoke to Aminu Yukubu, the Vice President of Research Planning and Ethics for the Nigerian company 54Gene. 54Gene is a health technology company, advancing the state of healthcare through large-scale discovery and translational research, advanced molecular diagnostics and clinical programs, addressing the lack of genetic data from African populations for the benefit of both Africans and the global population. So, Aminu, 
please can you introduce yourself and um, tell us a bit about 54 Gene? Um, thank you very much, Tristan, uh, for having me uh, to have this chat with you. My name is Aminu Yakubu, and um, I work with 54 Gene, where I lead the um, uh, research governance and ethics team. Um, as you already know, uh, 54 Gene is a health technology company that's working to help advance the state of healthcare um, through large-scale discovery and translational research, uh, as well as advanced molecular diagnostics and clinical programs. And largely, this is targeted towards the benefit of Africans, but we believe that it will also benefit uh, the global other global, global uh, population. Um, it's a new company uh, founded in 2019. And basically, we're working to utilize uh, the, some of the genomic data we derive from diverse populations uh, to achieve the, aim, the same aims uh, that I had um, mentioned earlier about why we are set up, uh, which is translational research, precision medicine, diagnostics, um, and the like. So in, in part, um, as you've, you've mentioned with improving uh, precision medicine and translational medicine, um, and primarily for Africans, a lot, a lot of the issue um, that exists currently is that there's this sort of um, race bias in genomic data. I think most of the, I think something along the lines of 80% of the current genetic data that's available is from um, North American and European um, white people. Um, what are some of the key issues that arise um, from this current race bias in genomic data? Uh, you're right, Tristan. So the race bias uh, put in clear numbers is about um, only 3% of the genomic data available, uh, you know, that is used for genomics research uh, is from African population. And only about 1% of translational research is uh, conducted, um, you know, uh, involving Africans. Uh, so, so that's very critical uh, for us. Uh, so what does that mean for us? I think the core issue at these are two, um, are issues of equity and issues of our progress of science. Equity in the sense that, um, you know, it's been a long time since people have started in the 80s talking about the 1090 gap, whereas um, it's really... Uh, most of the resources invested in research and development, 90% of it is invested, you know, uh, on research uh, on, uh, you know, in in the developed countries, uh, which have about only 10% of the disease burden, and uh, only 10% of it is being uh, spent in um, developing countries who have about 90% of the disease burden. And, um, um, uh, you know, the issue of the race bias, also, we'll continue to foster that inequity in access to uh, the products of research and development, and in, uh, in uh, and as a result, also in perhaps further deepening uh, the burden of diseases uh, that are affecting uh, African and other and other similar populations, as it were. In terms of progress of science, uh, recently, I mean, there there are very recent uh, publications that have consolidated the fact that. Um, Africa as a population um, has the most diverse uh, genetics uh, and actually being argued to be the cradle of humanity. Uh, so m m the greater genomic diversity of the human being actually can be found among African populations. So if most of the research 
know, among populations that uh, have um, arguably, uh, you know, much, much, much lower genomic diversity, that's perhaps stifling uh, the potential of genomic research uh, or genomics generally in enabling us understand the human being himself and actually also being able to understand the determinants of diseases as, uh, as they are affected by our, the diversity of our genomics. So those are critical for me, and I think those are very important issues that uh, should call for, um, as, as right-wing scientists are doing uh, in recent times, really should call for increase in diversity uh, of the availability of genomic data uh, for research and development, and especially including African populations. So um, what have you been able to do at 54Gene um, to begin to address some of these, these issues so far? So uh, 54Gene, I'm surprised you didn't ask about what the 54 stands for. Uh, 54 actually stands for the number of African countries. Really, our aspiration is to be that pan-African organization that actually helps to democratize genomics, uh, genomics data and expertise um, you know, and research capacity across Africa. So we started our research out of Nigeria. Uh, in Nigeria right now, we're partnering with health institutions to, to address both equity and the progress of science issues that I mentioned earlier. We are right now partnering with more than 17 teaching hospitals. Teaching hospitals are kind of centers of excellence for medical training in Nigeria. Uh, it is with those institutions who also have a mandate uh, to conduct research that we are partnering. We are also focusing on increasing access to genomic data from Africans, and we think that it would help address these equity issues. And also on the equity in science discoveries, we think our partnership with these health institutions would have attendant benefit in potential improvement in efficacy of newer medicines. Uh, so we are conducting this genomics research with these institutions, and we think in both aspects of equity, by increasing the number of African institutions that are into genomics research, and as such the availability of the genomics data, we are addressing that equity issue in a way. And so another issue, precision medicine is also now being discussed, and, and we, very importantly, and as a company, we are poised to collaborate with local and international institutions to see how the genotyping and sequencing capacities we are putting in place could actually uh, sort of foster precision medicine on some of the common diseases that are amenable to targeted therapies. Interestingly, uh, just yesterday, we announced the first set of trainees for our Molecular Genetics Academy. Uh, which is really another effort at democratization of knowledge that uh, 54Gene is, is, is into. Uh, we are also working through what we have established, which is the African Center for Translational Genomics, uh, to begin to, in addition to other things, award an African grant to promote genomics uh, research. That's really fantastic to hear how you're, how you're sort of starting to overcome these, these inequities, as you, as you put them. Um, and what, when you're conducting this work, when you're trying to correct these, um, these issues, what do you find is the most common barrier or challenge in your work? That, that, that's an interesting question, Tristan. So the sort of work we're doing, uh, in general, genomics research is beginning to, um, you know, get a lot of traction globally, but most especially, uh, in African settings. I could recall, for example, 
Uh, it was some time in 2011 where here in Nigeria a sort of workshop was held to create awareness among Nigerian scientists about a new initiative that was about to come on board, uh, which was then the H3 Africa. Uh, H3 Africa, as you know, is really an initiative that was put in place to foster and promote genomics research uh, on the African continent. Again, uh, because of concerns about this poor inclusion of the African genomic data in the genomic discoveries. So, because it's relatively new, currently what we are struggling with is the issue of limited regulation and awareness of the potential of genomics research in improving quality of healthcare through translational and precision medicine. Regulation in the sense that uh, we are aware uh, of the dearth of regulation in especially African countries on how to do genomics research. That's critical. So we have had to really look into uh, the limited regulation. But thank God, thankfully, there are universal regulation uh, or guidelines on how to do genomics research, like best practice ways of doing genomics research ethically. And, and that's what we have chosen to do, to work beyond what is available, but to also, you know, use what is uh, best practice guidelines that are out there to work uh, best in this field. But again, the issue of uh, awareness is an issue in that what you get is it affects the response of regulatory authorities or collaborators or other scientists that don't truly or fully understand what are the issues. And, and that brings us back to what we are about at 54 Gene. To address these equity issues of equity and progress in genomics research, we cannot, as Africans, continue to take the back seat when uh, uh, new discoveries are being made. And uh, uh, new discoveries are only useful when it goes from the bench and into a product that can actually improve people's lives. And, and that's really the bridge that we want to continue to, to foster and facilitate, that we don't just become consumers, but we are also uh, producers of new knowledge, new products that we play a key role in those processes as well. So you've you've mentioned there how um, the limited knowledge or understanding of genomics data can then go on to affect regulation, and I imagine that also has impacts on the way funding is spent from governments. Um, and then you've also stated that you'd like to see, um, as Africans, um, researchers from at the African continent not taking a back seat in global issues um, and in in research. So, do you find that it's that that limited understanding and perhaps the follow through at governmental levels that is sort of blocking you from taking that front seat, or is it also a case of the sort of international scientific community's engagement with with African? researchers and institutions such as yourself what have you found the international reception to, to 54 gene in your work to have been like uh, thank you uh, Tristan so on international reception or a reception of the international community of the work that we do I would say in general it has been positive re reception we have a number of people or institutions with which we are discussing ways to, do, to leverage on our expertise and technology to sort of foster the application of genomics in improving healthcare. So a number of institutions that we are discussing that, especially in the area of precision medicine. However, we have also received some cautious skepticism, largely around the ethics of 
our operations. And this is understandable, Tristan, because if you look around, we are actually the first of our kind in Africa. Uh, a private company that is seeking to promote translational and precision medicine, also with a strategy that this, that actually uh, seeks to bring value to government and the people of African countries through collaboration with commercial entities that are actually the major instruments for developmental research. And I want to this, I would like this to sink in. Hardly do you find development research happening through government investment on their own. Uh, what we have found is really development research institutions so that, you know, invest significant amount of resources to come up with new products, new technologies that could actually help improve uh, the experience of the, the patients. I have a family member right now that is using a new drug that is meant for prostate cancer, brand name Zyikiga, and I think the product name is Alderopterone. Um, these are some of the new products that are born out of you know research, but more importantly, taking the bench research into development where you can't do that, governments don't hardly invest in that. Right now, African countries have been for a long time uh, committed through a number of uh, declarations, one of which is the Bamako uh, Declaration on Health Research, that seeks African countries to invest at least 1% of their health budget for research and development. Many African countries are yet to achieve that. And even if that were to be achieved, that would have been just for basic research uh, rather than uh, translational you know, uh, research, as it were. And here we are, a private company uh, that is seeking to, to do this, to bring value to both governments and individuals. So, so the cautious skepticism are, are important. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, there is also limited regulation around genomics research. We have decided to be as transparent as we can on the ethics and social value of our work and have actually reached out to a number of international and regional actors seeking for collaboration, and in a number of instances, also seeking guidance to say, this is what we are doing. What else can you share with us to help us even do better? So, so really, that, those are sort of the issues in terms of the uh, reception of international community. During these interviews, I asked each of the interviewees, each with very different backgrounds, what the main issue facing African research was. Many people listening to this podcast may find some of their responses surprising or confronting, and others will not be surprised in the least. Here are their answers. So, Laura, what do you think is the greatest challenge facing researchers in Africa today? Yeah, so I think the greatest challenge faced by African researchers is white people completely monopolizing um, academia and science, right? I think that um, it's just absolutely pathetic that in 2020 we have these institutions that have zero African scientists at all not even I mean and, and you have these societies and you have journals and you have I mean white people are obviously the biggest challenge they, they just are and I know that's a confronting thing to say but it's a fact it's an absolute fact right I mean there's so many hateful things that happen on Twitter and, and, and around on social media, but you know, there 1% of the scientific literature 
comes from the African continent. And that has nothing to do with quality or quantity. That has to do with the gatekeepers of spreading information being white. That's, that's the true definition of systemic racism right there is knowledge is not even allowed to be out of the gate because you have these huge, massive money-making things that want to sell white articles and want to sell white things because they think that's what people want. And we just have to dismantle those systems and rebuild them in a different way. Thank you so much for joining us, Laura. And thank you for not, not holding your punches. It's been, uh, it's been great to have you on the podcast. No, thank you so much. My final question for you today, Natasha, is what do you think is the greatest challenge facing researchers in Africa today? I would, I, I dare say it's funding. I think research in general is just underfunded in Africa. Uh, obviously more in some countries than others, but I think it's without funding, and this is true for any place in the world, but without funding you can't do as much. And I think... Um, it's also it's the onus also on governments on, on African governments to see the value in investing in research. Um, I see like in, in many countries that's not happening on a scale that it needs to, particularly because there's issues on the continent that need to be fixed by people on the continent. You know, we can't expect to get solutions from abroad. So I think funding is probably a really big challenge. I mean, there are many others, but I think that's one that can't be understated. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Natasha, for joining me on the podcast. It's been really great to uh, to hear from you um, and to hear about all the great work that Visibility Stems Africa, Africa is um, is doing. Um, yeah, so thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Aminu, what do you think is the greatest challenge facing researchers in Africa today? Oh, that's, that's a very interesting question, uh, Tristan. So I think there are some of the issues I have mentioned earlier. Um, so I wouldn't say the greatest challenge, but I think a number of very, very important challenges. One that I mentioned is this issue of awareness, you know, and understanding about the potentials of genomics research and how you are better, how one is able to regulate it better I think that's one critical, very important challenge. And, and really having a sort of regulatory framework that facilitates that understanding is also very critical. Another very important challenge, I think, is also um, that of capacity uh, of scientists to actually uh, lead you know, these research studies and discoveries. Some of the challenges has been that genomics research previously has been driven by people that are coming from other Afri sorry, other developed countries to do research and it has been argued that there has been less than fair in that sort of collaboration. What I think is also having research collaboration that are seeking to promote or address the gap in diversity and inclusion of African genomics data in the genomics uh, discovery pipeline, but also uh, making sure that there is fairness in that sort of collaboration. What we seek as Fifty to promote is actually having uh, research scientists actually be the leaders of thought on uh, research discoveries that affect the health of African population. Then, of course, funding. 
very limited funding coming from African companies, sorry, African countries. Uh, I think some regional initiatives that kind of galvanizes resources to facilitate, uh, you know, capacity building, technology, leapfrogging of technology, and democratization of expertise are, are actually critical. And some of the ways that all these can actually be overcome, like I mentioned, is really through this this uh, understanding and actually entering into partnerships with organizations uh, having a shared uh, framework of ethics and values. And we think that we're just one organization, one company, so, so really there's a whole lot of room for other collaborators or other initiatives as ours uh, to begin to address some of these uh, challenges uh, in research in African countries. Fantastic. Um, it's been it's been really interesting to hear some of the responses to that question, um, and uh, particularly what you've just said there about uh, researchers who have been less than fair in their um, collaborations, uh, almost in air quotes, um, with with African researchers and African institutes. Um, I spoke uh, previously with Laura Boykin, um, who, when she answered that question, she said that the the greatest challenge to African research. Uh, were simply white people. Um, so referring to the fact that white people have set up the systems and institutions, um, such as journals and funding entities, uh, which then predominantly favour and um, encourage the research of white people. Um, and as you've mentioned, there's that practice of sort of helicopter research, um, where people come across, take uh, big data samples or and collaborate, again, in, in air quotes, with, uh, with African researchers, take it back to their institution and um and then publish the results without crediting anyone um so so would you uh would you agree that that's that's maybe the greatest issue or um or do you think that it's it's sort of yeah, one no, of three no 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 um i would argue that that's actually the greatest issue uh, and and that's uh, you know uh, yeah and then i mentioned that that that's all within the rubric of what I meant when I said fairness in research collaboration. So it's really critical. It is the greatest issue uh, that is affecting uh, research in African countries. Again, it is also very closely linked with the issue I mentioned about very poor investment in research because it's only because there is very little investment by the government or any other kind of local regional entity that those kind of things are happening. So the issues of democratization of expertise, leapfrogging of technology and all that can only happen, you know, in an, in an environment that, you know, that provides for uh, more fairness in collaboration. So with fair, fair collaboration, which is really that issue of involving Africans as experts in and of themselves rather than using them as quote-unquote, mere data collectors, such that after the primary data collection um, 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 and, and maybe one or two papers, the utilization of most of the data that is out there that has been stored in a database somewhere, in most cases outside of Africa, is largely meant to people that have the tools and resources to mine, to continue to mine that data. And really, most of the utility, most of the things you get out of uh, genomics research a lot of it actually comes with being able to, uh, you know, uh, use the data set from one study and sometimes also in combination with data set from other, another study 
in what is widely known as uh, uh, genomic-wide association uh, uh, studies to be able to come up, you know, identify uh, unique things that would help improve the knowledge uh, uh, further than just beyond, uh, you know, what has been done in a, in a small country. Yes, so Africa as a country, uh, as a continent in general, that is the greatest challenge, you know, that of, uh, because most of the investment, uh, Tristan, is actually coming from Western countries. And and because of that, a lot of initiatives have been led by uh, the scientists from the Western, uh, Western countries without, um, you know, fairness in, you know, in the way they deal with the scientists in the African countries. To address that, international collaborative research studies need to start collaborating with uh, African scientists right from the stage of conception. Uh, when you want to apply for a grant, the thinking process should include the potential scientists in African countries you would like to collaborate with. It could be that it's one or two people because of, you know, sometimes the challenges of time in applying for a grant, but it could be a progressive engagement. But also build capacity so that they can actually also engage with the data much after the primary science, primary research is over. So secondary use of data, for example, is very important. And that's where I talked about democratization of expertise and knowledge, as it were. But also leapfrogging technology is not just enough to do that and continue to do the sequencing and the genotyping outside of Africa. It's important to be able to do it in Africa. Fantastic. Well, it's been really interesting to hear how those two sort of challenges of the Western researchers coming across and um, not behaving in a fair manner then also plays into that issue with the the funding. And it's almost that that negative feedback loop that you um, you end up getting. Um, It's been fantastic to speak to you, um, Aminu. Have you got any last um, last comments that you'd like to make? I think I'm very happy, Tristan. Uh, But I do think that um, these discussions that we are having now, Tristan, is not the only one. There have been various discussions that are happening, but I would see, would like to see these discussions happening even more because what is happening right now is still like a drop in the ocean in terms of how we're involving uh, African institutions to democratize knowledge, to foster science, as it were, especially in the field of genomics. Uh, still, uh, 3% uh, data availability from African countries, I think it's much, much below what is needed. But so with discussions like this, I am hoping that it could continue to create the necessary awareness so whether we continue to push boundaries uh, to enable the sort of fair science that we have been calling for uh, and also greater involvement of African scientists in research and development. But that um, uh, framework that facilitates fairness in that collaboration uh, is very critical. To me, these answers together work to show how the current structure of scientific research, from funding to publication, make it difficult for researchers in Africa to get their efforts recognised and papers published. Meanwhile, opportunistic behaviours, such as helicopter research, are awarded. While there is vital work on the continent that is flourishing despite these circumstances, as highlighted on Visibility STEM Africa by Natasha, the successes of the Cassava Virus Action Project, and by the work of 54Gene, working to raise awareness on the continent for the benefits of genomic data, this podcast has raised many problematic issues. The structural biases in favour of white North American and European researchers, 
and the barriers against black Africans in what we would like to consider a global scientific community have been made clear, indicating that science has a very long way to go before researchers in Africa are working on a level playing field, with every opportunity to get recognised for their work as would be afforded to their white European or North American counterparts. It's an issue that I would like to explore further in future podcasts, and is certainly one that needs to be addressed by the scientific community. I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast and that you might have picked up something on a topic that you may not have considered before. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and goodbye.